I don't believe you motivate people. I believe people motivate themselves. And if you create the environment for them to keep their own motivation high, they will do so. Psychological Safety at Work, a season of podcasts from Talking Leaders. Anne Cormack, MBE, has been a senior leader in a number of organisations, including Shell, BP, Rolls-Royce and the De Beers Group of Companies. She's also worked in government in the UK, at the Department of Trade and Industry and with the Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. Change and business development have been recurring themes throughout Anne's career, as has her focus on people. And even though, like many of us, she only latterly became aware of the term psychological safety, it turns out, as you'll hear, that she's been a proponent of it right from the start of her leadership career. I started our conversation by asking Anne, what does psychological safety mean to her? It means something very critical in any business, frankly, and not just in business, of course, but any organisation, and that includes your personal relationships too. And psychological safety basically means the freedom and the ability to just be yourself and to feel that nothing that you say will be taken adversely or that you are trusted and you trust others around you such that you can be yourself and bring, in the case of the workplace, your whole self to work every day. And thinking back over your career, how long have you been aware of the concept of psychological safety? How long has it been an important thing in your working life? I mean, the term itself has got red hot in the last few years, but does your interest in in the subject predate that? It certainly does. Um, I was asked in my first three months working what I thought the purpose of a manager was, to which I replied, it is to create the environment where everybody can excel. And part of creating that environment is ensuring that people feel psychologically safe to be themselves. You know, irrespective of their background, their colour, their creed, their language, it's about getting the best from everybody. Um, and you know the wonderful variety of diversity that we have available to us, especially in international businesses. So would you say that psychological safety has been a strong theme then in your leadership? Um, yes. Um, do you know, I don't know that I was even aware of it uh, as a specific theme. It just was who we were in that organisation. So people were encouraged to speak up. They were encouraged to take responsibility and give voice to their opinions and um, to make sure that their opinions were going to add value. And by getting people to do that, you grow a business in a really, I think, sustainable way. But were you aware that that wasn't true for everywhere in the workplace? At the time, no. I had only worked inside the Shell group of companies, well, for the first 20 years, as I mentioned. So I thought everybody operated in the same way. And it was only when I left that I realized not every organization is like that. Mm -hmm. So were you able to draw then upon what you learned at Shell in those situations to maybe make a difference? Yes, absolutely. So um, giving examples of how people actually lent in 
to, to coin another more modern phrase, but literally engaged really well with the agenda for the organization and for the business, uh, committed themselves to achieving joint um, goals across the business, and then took ownership of their bit to make sure everybody else could achieve their goals as well. So um, those those characteristics, if you like, of an organization um, can be easily uh, uh, referred to and more, it's more difficult to transfer them, but at least if you've got an understanding of what you're trying to achieve, it makes it easier to actually get there and talk to people about what it's like to operate in that kind of environment compared to the environment that you inherit. Mm. All right, let's dig a bit deeper then into the practicalities of that then. I mean, as you say, you, say you've, you, you were very used to that kind of environment when you were at Shell and then you've been able to apply your lessons in other places where it maybe wasn't quite such the same situation. Let's start off with measurement i mean as a leader let's say with a hypothetical leader yes has the same mindset as you thinks that it's a very important thing and that success has to be built through people and that psychological safety is a big factor in that but how can a leader tell whether or not how can they measure the psychological temperature if you like safety temperature in their their organization and be and be confident that they really are getting a true picture I think the easiest way to measure it is by outputs. So if your people are really engaged, if they are used to sharing ideas, brainstorming, and no idea is too wacky to be um, listened to and understood, so so people actually ask questions about what's really meant, uh, seeking to understand as they do that, um, I think that... Um, underscores and really helps to develop the creativity in a team and their ability to not just deliver well, you know the the straightforward delivery they're required to deliver but over and above and to really go beyond um, the, one of the more modern terms is a team in flow and if you are in a team that's in flow you really feel it uh, likewise you feel it if it's not in flow so if you if you've been in a high performing team that is generally one where people feel safe to contribute even the wackiest ideas but especially to give off their utmost every day and to consider all ideas as possibilities with the ability then to rapidly reach an outcome and decision making on what is the the, the way forward we want to choose now um, because sometimes circumstances mean you can't necessarily go straight to the wackiest idea but then carry other ideas with you so your working hypothesis is well we'll go with this but that doesn't preclude us doing the other uh, as we progress with this particular solution that we have on the table so i suppose all of those things are they really add up to a feeling in the team um, and people are constantly pushing they're they're seeking greater performance of the team and themselves they're looking for feedback from you um, and I suppose the psychological safety element is that underpins everything is trust. And that trust, when it's really strong, ends up with people in the team actually being really good friends as well as great colleagues. Mm. Would you, are you able to share an example then of, of where you've maybe you did something where you, you maybe surprised a team and, and, and made them realize that this is, this was something that they could do and you saw them saw them change and develop as a result of the the, the, uh, the, the safer environment yes um, I can it was it was actually after I'd left shell so it was a team that I'd inherited 
but I'd been able to put together from different departments in government. And the team was, in essence, a good group of people. You know, there was not a single bad person there, but they weren't in flow. And I don't know that they'd ever experienced flow before. So they didn't know they were missing it. And um, one day I found in a, a very sort of dusty glass cabinet in the corner of the main office, a silver cup. And I asked, you know, what's the silver cup for? And it used to be given for golf, but they don't play golf anymore. So I said, well, can we purloin it if we promise to polish it? <laughs> Which we did. And we borrowed it for the time I was there. And I said, I, got, I gathered the team on the Friday afternoon. I said, one of the things we're missing is the trust that enables us all to really engage. And engagement means that we're all sparking off each other and we're creative and we're wanting to do more rather than watching the clock and trying to do as little as possible before going home. And I said, and one of the things that um, determines whether a team can be in flow or not is how many people are radiators and how many people are drains. And I said, let me explain what I mean. Radiators are those people who just emanate energy, enthusiasm, commitment, etc. And a drain is somebody that you can feel almost the, the energy draining away from you as you're talking to them because it's really hard work. And that was the Friday afternoon. On the Monday morning, one of the younger members of the team came to me and he said, can I have a quiet word? And I said, yes, no problem. So we, we went into a small meeting room and he said, I think over the weekend I was considering what you said and I think I'm a drain. I'd like to be a radiator. Will you help me? So I said, well, of course. You know, okay. So we had a, a program of activity and just, you know, I've given feedback. He was seeking feedback every day from then on. And um, he was able to win the award, the first award for Radiator of the Month. Radiator of the Month. That's a great title. Uh, people just saw the change in him yeah. and thought, oh, something's happening here. And he would talk to them about being a radiator. Now, and did, this was universal, the, the, the sort of response and the uptake from everyone and everyone in the team? Well, there was one or two who didn't really buy into it. They just wanted to do what they had to do and then go home. But I was in a position where I was responsible for something that was cross-government. So I could ask those departmental heads to take those people back to their own department and give me somebody else instead. There comes a point when if people just don't want that sort of working environment, uh, you just have to make that choice. Mm. Anything else, any sort of practical steps you as the leader would offer to people to say these these things help? Yes. Um, in Shell, we used to use something called a grippy. Um, and the grippy was the start of every meeting. Oh, in fact, it used to, you know, when we were considering the agenda and making sure everybody was happy with the agenda, we'd go through the grippy. And that was about goals for the meeting, what roles people had in the meeting, and the interpersonals that were um, you know, at the fundament of the meeting. So we would almost contract on the interpersonal relationships um, uh, around the meeting table. And that meant openness, uh, transparency, and um, a willingness to use ears and mouth in the same proportion as the number of each that we have, i.e. listen, <laughs> as well as uh, using uh, your own mouth to advocate for your own perspective. So um, that was a very obvious way of sort of 
contracting every time. And it was quite easy for people to to just create a tea with their hands and say, I need to call the time out. I feel I'm not being listened to. And that would get you to a point where you say, well, do people think it's not worth listening to or it's just a tangent to what the real discussion is? Or, you know, have we really missed something you're trying to tell us? So let's go into some inquiry here and listen well to see whether actually we should be learning something from you before moving on in the conversation. So it was really um practical tool that we could use uh, and the team just got into such a way of using it that you know the, the grippy was part of our everyday lives so that, that's one thing and I suppose the other another is you, you referred to measurement how can you measure 360 degree feedback um, should always include um, that, that kind of question whether it be an employee opinion survey across the company or within a specific team, but it is worth asking the question, particularly early on in your conversation about psychological safety, maybe every time you have a a team meeting, but certainly on perhaps a quarterly basis thereafter and maybe once a year after that, and especially when you've got new people joining, it's important to talk about it so that people understand what it means and then hold each other to account for enabling it because then you get the best from everybody. Now, okay, as a leader, you're doing these things and you can see before you, especially if you're you're honest with yourself, how it's playing out, whether or not it's working. Um, What about uh, psychological safety, but within a peer group, you know, between your direct reports, so when you're not in the room, so to speak? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, the same is true. I mean, uh, you you mentioned earlier a situation where you felt a team member, uh, a peer of yours, was actively undermining you. you know, that's incredibly corrosive in any organisation. And if you don't have trust between peers, um, you will never get the teams to trust each other and work together well, uh, because often the um, it's the sparking between teams that leads to breakthroughs. You know, a team can be totally on top of its own area and, re- and what it's responsible for. And another team can be the same. But there's usually a gap or a, 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 um, an abutment in between them. Um, so that's where you find breakthroughs. And it's important to therefore have a free flow of conversation between teams as well as within teams. And for the leaders, um, it's essential that they give corporate leadership. And that means they are seen to be working together as well as working together in a very practical and a very positive way, because they're giving an everyday example to every single team member that's watching them. Mm. Mm. But I mean, some people I, I'm sure would say that um, innovation and and breakthrough ideas can come from things like competitiveness and, and friction uh, between team members. Is there any room for those things in a psychologically safe environment? Uh, well, psychological safety doesn't mean to say there's no friction. I mean, people can have disagreements and still be psychologically safe. Uh, you can have competition. Well, personally, I'm not a fan of competition between teams inside one organization. Frankly, there's enough competition outside. But if a leader should choose to have two teams competing maybe for investment money or um, in, in that way, then yes, you will have disagreements. You know, Some will think their idea is better than another, but um, it doesn't mean to say they're not psychologically safe uh, in having that kind of environment. Personally, I, I think the 
innovation particularly and the the fighting for uh, investment is a good thing as long as people understand the strategy of the organization and that applies to your product or service strategy as well as the strategic direction of the organization. Because once they understand that, if the decision goes against them for the meantime, they will know it's a tough a tough decision to make, that the board of directors or the, the ex-co has to decide what's important now versus the longer term and to protect cash flow. So sometimes you do have to make tough decisions and it's not the one you'd prefer to make, but you have to make it. So, you know, people have to learn to be sort of mature in that kind of environment and accept that, okay, decisions made, let's move on and find the next one. Or you know, that one may have its time in two years time or three years time. We may put it back in again as another investment opportunity at that stage, if it's still relevant. But, you know, you can't have a situation where because a team is in competition with another team that they feel unsafe psychologically. It needn't be that way. Mm. So have you ever been in a situation yourself, uh, not as as a leader, but as an individual, where you felt that um, you weren't in a psychologically safe environment and that that in some way inhibited you? On a personal level, uh, no, I haven't. And I suppose it's because I've always felt that what I thought or had to say was worth contributing. And um, even if the person listening uh, on the other side of the table didn't want to hear it, I was still going to give it. <laughs> so I, I guess I, I just have that confidence to contribute, even if it's not particularly welcome at the time. That's really interesting. So uh, what do you think are the qualities then that you've been able to draw upon that that ha- has made you feel like that and fe- made you feel, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but strong or resilient or whatever? What, what are the qualities you think that have helped you there? I'm not sure they're qualities, but but um, uh, I guess to a degree it is either expertise or experience that the other person didn't necessarily have or hadn't bothered to to find out about. Um, and because I had that broader experience, I could say, well, this might work, but actually in my previous experience, that didn't work and we did this instead. Uh, you might want to think about that. Um, and perhaps there's something in how you say things as well. You know, if you if you say things in a very direct confrontational statement, it can feel very aggressive to somebody, and they can feel uh, quite put upon in a conversation. Whereas uh, how you say things can be softened if you pose something as a sort of a, a rhetorical question or relate it to previous experience, personal experience that you had and say, well, it didn't work then. It could work now. Yeah, might do. But actually, maybe we should rethink it. Um, so, you know, you, you're not closing out options and choices. You are keeping them on the table and you're giving the opportunity for the other person to come in. And they may come in and say, no, we're doing it this way. And if they hold the authority, then that's fine. You go with it. But it doesn't stop you contributing what you think and what you feel. Right. So you're, uh, you're not saying that you don't care how what you say is received. You 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 do have a, 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 a sort of a mind to that. Oh, I think that's crucial. <laughs> I think it's really important because if you if you don't care how it's received, well, why say it? 
You know, you have to care how it's received to make sure it is received correctly because everybody's an individual. Some people like things in a direct statement. Others like things to be posed in the form of a question that actually really causes themselves to think rather than being told what the answer is. So you have to judge that and then choose to give your contribution in a way that's going to be well received. Yeah. Are you able to share an example where you knew that you were going to say something that needed to be worded carefully to land well? Yes. I don't know if you've ever been in a position of helping somebody to leave an organisation. When you are responsible for redundancy situation, it's really important to make sure you've thought through what you're going to say, how you're going to say it, and practice it, and try it out several times in advance so that you can anticipate what you would say after different reactions. And I found that really, really hard, um, as I'm pretty sure most people do, if you're doing it with heart. And um, everybody was different. That was the difficult bit. And when you're having to reduce a company by a substantial number of roles and you're dealing with a lot of people in one day, uh, it, it really is very hard to get that pitch right for each individual. It's crucial because there's only one conversation that they have. You may be having many. They're just having the one. Mm. Was there anything in particular that you'd, you'd reflect upon that, that helped guide you to the right words and, and the right tone? Funnily enough, I think tone is even more important than the actual words. Having the empathy to understand that this is a really important discussion for the individual concerned. As far as they're concerned, it's the only discussion they're having that day. Um, making them feel it's the only one you're having and that you are totally focused on them. And then, um, so how you do that, it, it does vary by individual, but it, it's about a respectful approach and remaining clear in the message. So the message you have to give needs to be clear and understood, but it doesn't have to be brutal. So you can soften it by saying, you know, the uh, I don't want this to happen, or I'd rather it was a different outcome. But this is the situation. And for you, I will do everything I can to support you as you leave the business and mean it. And several people are still in touch with me, even though I have made them redundant in the past, uh, because um, I, you know, maybe I give them you know, personal recommendations or references, personal references, not just company references, and also practical help in actually meeting headhunters or seeking new roles and putting new roles their, their way. So there are practical things you can do as well as the words you use, but essentially it's, it's got to be the tone that really you know, chimes with the individual. So Kitty, have you got any examples of where you've seen psychological safety you know, really kick off, really, really make a difference and, and, uh, and show great outcomes? It was actually in a pretty high performing team already. So we had, uh, I was leading the team and I had a team of 120 people across Europe from uh, 24, 27 different countries. And not just Europeans, there were Australians and Americans in there too. And to the team, I actually was talking about the challenges of the year ahead and how we were going to set our target for the year. And 
in order to get them to really engage with it and own that target, I wanted them to set themselves a stretch target. So the conversation went along the lines of, um, well, we could choose to double the profit over the first two years because we think we probably can. The numbers say we probably can do that in the year ahead. What do you think we should do? So at that point, by throwing it open to the floor, it gave the opportunity for people to say, I don't think we should double it. I think we should only go for maybe 50% increase. And for others to say, yeah, I think we can do we can do more than double. And that then led to a constructive conversation across the floor of the, uh, the there was actually only um, 12 people in that conversation with the others listening in because the 12 were the, the managers of the different teams. Um, uh, but the teams were feeding their managers with their own thoughts. So they didn't feel excluded. They were included, but only 12 people were talking. And at the end of that conversation, we came out with a target. Uh, instead of 10, it was 16. Okay. So, yeah. So it was, it was um, uh, 10 would have been double. 16 was what they were willing to put their names to. And that was the first year. And in the second year, um, I got them back together again in a different place, same meeting, same point of the meeting, and the same way of doing it. And we had actually produced um, more than the 16. And they said, well, we could go for double again. How about 32? And they said, no, we can go for 40. So I was in the end trying to, um, trying to mitigate what they were committing themselves to but they they were not gung-ho they just knew their business so well by then and they were so enthusiastic and committed to it that they wanted to go for the greater stretch so it was a bit like trying to harness uh, the power of this team and actually direct it in the right direction but it was running away with me and that was a, a wonderful feeling um you know a bit of a hairy ride but in the end they outperformed even against that higher target as well so and by the third year they were on target for 100 wow from yeah. from, from 10 being double from 10 being double in the first year wow wow yeah you come across as a very people focused leader you know people people you see people as essential to the endeavors that you're engaged with um, not all leaders see it quite like that, though, do they? I would say the successful ones do. <laughs> but then I would say that, wouldn't I? I think, uh, yes, you're, you're right. There's different ways you can do it. Um, but I've always been in businesses that depended on having and keeping good people, keeping them, uh, keeping their motivation high, because I don't believe you motivate people. I believe people motivate themselves. And if you create the environment for them to keep their own motivation high, they will do so. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who, they're not the leader, they're in a team, say, or in a department, and they really don't feel psychologically safe? There's probably two routes you can take. If you feel yourself to be a leader and you are committed to the overall organisation, you can seek support and that might be in the form of talking to the leader of the team you're in or you can go to a peer of that individual or you could go to you know you could follow the usual what you might call infrastructural 
directions, which would be a, a whistleblower's line or you know a helpline of some kind, an anonymous place you could go and talk to somebody from HR. But if you feel yourself to be a leader, then it's important to equip yourself to have that conversation and then to have uh, somebody to, to coach you through it or you know, to try it out with in advance and then to have it. But you may be faced with a choice then that says, well, do you know what? I don't feel that I want to stay in this organization and therefore I will have an exit route. Um, so it's always good to have a plan B. And these these days people can't get enough good people. Um, you just look around and so many organizations have got vacancies galore and they just cannot recruit good people. So I think the days where um, leaders could say, well, it doesn't matter if they leave, I'll just get somebody else. I think those days are over. Right. Right. It's a, it's a seller's market. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in conversations with, with people, in, including the Vox Pops that I, I did recently where I went out into the streets and um, I just asked people about psychological safety. And it sounds like a lot of organizations are setting up structures similar to that which you were referring to. You, you talked about a whistleblower line or something like that. And sometimes mm -hmm. it doesn't even have to be a whistleblower line, but it's 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 a you know, a place where someone can go, maybe even anonymously to begin with, to express a concern. So I'm assuming you'd 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 support the setting up of, of structures like that if uh, if you can. If they're not already in place, absolutely. Many organisations, certainly larger organisations, do have that, and frequently the whistleblowing line is maintained by an external organisation, so it's not even handled by anybody inside um, the organisation in which you find yourself. Um, I think the, um, it's important to have the plan B, as I mentioned, so what happens if. But f what sits underneath that is an understanding about your own values um, and really what makes you comfortable in the workplace. And if your own values are not those that are the values of the organisation or the organisation simply, the part of the organisation you're in simply doesn't live up to it, then you can choose to try and help it to live up to it or you can choose to move. And um, it, it's hard to do that, but it's even harder to stay in a part of the organization that just doesn't live up to your values every day. It's going to corrode your enthusiasm, your commitment, and your motivation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, we're running out of time, so I uh, need to, to wrap up. Um, final thoughts, Anne. What would you leave people with listening to this podcast? I think the one essential thing um, in psychological safety is to not be a bystander. So almost irrespective of any um, situation that you observe, if you see somebody being treated in a way that means they don't feel psychologically safe, or if you were in their shoes, you wouldn't, then don't be a bystander. Take ownership of that. Support the person after the event. Uh, try to get some feedback into the person that caused it. Um, try to uh, make sure that the organization as a whole leans in and helps that team to improve and that dynamic to improve. So I would say don't leave it undone. Mm. Even if even if you're a peer, I mean, if you're a leader and you see that happening, that's a bit, even if you see one of your your, your mates at work, being put in a difficult situation, you'd, you'd encourage someone to, to take action? Yes, I would. At the very least, to support the individual who's experienced it. Have you ever done that yourself? Yes, I have. 
Can you talk us through that briefly? What did you do? How did you go about it? I took them aside afterwards. In fact, I followed them down the corridor and said, I just observed and heard that. How are you feeling about it? And they said, well, pretty awful, actually. That's not exactly the words they used, but <laughs> they're repeatable. And I said, well, I'm willing to support you if you would like me to take this forward and have something done about it, because strikes me it might not have been the first time this individual has done it, but I'd like it to be the last time. And uh, the individual agreed and said, yes, somebody else in the team had had the same experience. So together uh, we took the case up. And in fact, the individual who caused it was given some really good straight feedback uh, with the support of HR, but from their own line manager. And um, there was a difficult time, as you'd expect, um, for the individual because it came shortly after that case. But um, you know, the individual then felt the stronger for it, went to the person that had done it and said, look, you know, I just don't want behavior like that because it gets in the way of us being successful together. You know, I'd like to work with you. Can we work together? And when it was put like that, the individual changed their behavior and said, yes, we can work together. I want to stay in this team and I want to work with you. But it was a tough time for them as well, you know, to receive that feedback because they'd been getting away with it for a while. Mm. The word courage has come up in several conversations I've had about about making sure that, you know, you really do make sure that, that non-psychologically safe situations are or unsafe situations are, are called out and, and uh, addressed. And, and addressed is the key word, I think, not just to flagged up, but actually something is done to help to help everybody she's saying and uh and then that situation that person who was behaving inappropriately maybe not may i don't know maybe he wasn't even aware of the impact they were having precisely <laughs> and that is something to remember because uh it's not just the one person that is affected because there will be two people affected you're you're right to use the word courage and some people have said uh, you have to be brave to do that but actually I think it comes down to common decency. And if you have a value that says you have respect for your fellow human beings, why would you ever want to talk to them in a way that was disrespectful and undercutting them or stopping them giving off their best? So, you know, yes, maybe it does take courage from, you know, <laughs> in that in that sense, but I think it if you just think about it as common decency, you know, would you would it would it help more people to do it? Yeah, brilliant. Anne Cormack, MBE, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been great talking to you. A big thanks to Anne for sharing her experience and advice. And let me ask you, thinking about what Anne said about outputs being a measure of psychological safety, is your team good at brainstorming and sharing ideas no matter how wacky they might be? If not, might be worth digging into why. I'm Paul Gisby of Talking Leaders. We help leaders to get heard, be understood, and to build trust. Goodbye.